Would you like to see the behind the scenes footage of the Pivot Me interviews? We have launched April Garcia Pivot Me on YouTube. Take 10 seconds now and go to YouTube and enter April Garcia Pivot Me or enter it directly at youtube.com backslash April Garcia Pivot Me. You can see all the guest interview with Jay Abraham, Sharon Lecter, Cameron Harold, John Lee Dumas. We are releasing new videos every Tuesday. Go ahead and stream with us. Hop on and join us. And please support us by giving that thumbs up and subscribing. It really does matter. And you are going to love these videos. Thanks for joining Pivot Me on YouTube. Welcome to Pivot Me, where we give business tips and mental hacks so you can move past your biggest obstacles and live the life you've earned. And now your host, business advisor and performance expert, April Garcia. For years, I made large companies larger and rich people richer. Now I coach driven entrepreneurs to hack success, create more time and get better results through high performance habits, the multiply me method, and a little mental gymnastics. On Pivot Me, I talk to thought leaders and experts sharing our successes, our many scrubs, and how we can all use both to move us to the next level. Join us and learn real, simple steps to pivot you and your business towards the life you've earned. At 27, he stopped chasing success. Why? Because his brother was killed in a terrorist attack. After that, he turned to service and impact. An impact is exactly what he has done. Our guest today is Anton Gunn, a former senior advisor to President Barack Obama and the world's leading authority on socially conscious leadership. He has a master's degree in social work and was a resident fellow at Harvard. He is the best-selling author of The Presidential Principles and has been featured in Time Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, BBC, NPR, and on Good Morning America. Anton sitting down with us to discuss leadership, service, and impact. He talks openly about getting into politics and the backlash he had, even from his own family members, about joining them. But Anton was focused on creating this massive ripple, as big as he could. And he's going to give us three questions. I love this part. Three questions every leader needs to know. And I would add that every business owner and parent need to know the answer to. You need these answers. Definitely grab a pen to write these down. So let's jump in with a man who might have the coolest name ever, Anton Gunn. Anton, thank you so much for joining us at Pivot Me today. Thank you for having me. Excited about being with you. Oh, I'm so glad that we could make this happen. So Anton and I were just in Nashville together a couple weeks ago, and we said, we've got to make this happen. You've got a busy travel schedule. I know that you are in high demand, so I'm so glad that we could get this on the calendar for today. Yeah, it's long overdue. So happy to be doing it. (laughs) It is. It is. I got to tell you, Pivoter, so Anton and I were supposed to start this interview like about 40 minutes ago, (laughs) but then we ended up having this great conversation and we were talking about speaking and we were talking about just all these other things that I think trying to add value to each other and to the work that we're trying to do. And Anton was just sharing so much of his expertise. I wish we would have caught all of that, but I'm actually going to jump right in because something that Anton said right before we came on and I said, I really want to expand on that. So you've got this amazing background. I want to ask you about your background, but in our conversation just now, you talked a lot about legacy 
And I just want to jump right into that. Your focus on service and your focus on legacy. And I said that that's something that I usually see someone focused on a little bit later down the road. And I'm curious why you're so passionate about that now. Yes, that's a really great question. I'm so happy that you asked it and we're starting in this place. I fundamentally believe that we all have a limited amount of time, no matter if we're living 20 years, 50 years, or 75 years. In the grand scheme of the history of the world, that's an incredibly limited amount of time to have an impact. And I have always, even from an early age, have wanted to make a difference in the lives of people. And that's why when I talk about my values, I make sure everybody understands there are four values that Anton lives by. The first value is service. The second value is empowerment. The third value is justice. And when I say justice, I believe it's fundamental responsibility to make things right for the people that they lead. And then in the fourth value is legacy. And I sum it up in a quote from Dr. Miles Monroe. And the quote says, success without a successor is a failure. And that if you don't use your gifts, your talents, your time and the space that you've been allotted on this earth to leave the world a better place than you found it, you might achieve success as a leader or as a business owner, but you will never achieve significance. And the greatest leaders, the ones who literally have the most success are the ones that don't chase success, they chase significance. And so the question is, where does this come from for me? Well, unfortunately, I've experienced some significant tragedies in my life. And I'll just tell you the the most important one is that my 22-year-old brother, uh, when I was 27, so it's now we're 22 years past this date, in October 2000, my 22-year-old brother was killed in a terrorist attack aboard the USS Cole that was bombed by two Al-Qaeda suicide bombers on October 12, 2000. And my 22-year-old brother was the life of the party always. And he has so many hopes and so many dreams and aspirations for his life that the Navy wasn't going to be a full part of it. I mean, he only wanted to join the Navy for four years to get some experience. And then he planned to go do something else with his life. But nine months after he joined the United States Navy, he was killed. And so my context is my brother didn't get a full chance to live out the success or significance of his life. He was significant to me, to my family, and every person he came in contact. But April, you never knew my brother, Sharon. Your listeners will never know Sharon. And so he didn't get a chance to have his legacy lasting impact on all of the lives that that I thought and that he thought that he would eventually touch. And so at 27, I made a decision that I would stop trying to chase success and that my only focus would be For anybody that I meet, anybody that I connect with, that my goal was to do three things. And that was to serve them first, empower them second. And if there's anything wrong in their world, in their lives, and what they're dealing with, is to do something to make it right. I may not have created the problem. I may not have the resources or the tools to solve all of the problem, but there's something that I can do to make it right. And sometimes that might just be acknowledging what people are going through. And so that's been my focus. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story. What a powerful experience. I'm so sorry for your loss. It sounds like you've made some profound changes in both how you were living life, how you approach success. And it sure sounds like your brother's legacy is living throughout you. 
Yes. And that's the whole point is people say, I'm sorry for your loss. And we as a family appreciate it. But I'm telling you now, had I not lost my brother in a terrorist attack that way, you would not know me today. I wouldn't be living the life that I've lived and the experience that I had. Everything that I've done has literally been in post October 12, 2000. So running for elective office and serving in public office, working for a president of the United States, traveling internationally and speaking on multiple continents and talking to leaders from around the world, meeting heads of states and other places. None of these things happened before I met that tragedy of losing my brother in a terrorist attack. And so, so yeah, so I'm grateful for it. And my family is grateful for it. We all live a life of service and nothing happens by mistake, everything happens for a reason, and it 100% happened for a reason. So I'm grateful for the opportunity now to add value because I've had that experience. Anton, in that same vein, I'm trying to imagine both what you guys went through, but then how you've reframed this to an incredibly positive thing. Now, there's lots of people who would go through the exact same scenario and would become bitter, would become angry, would have had such a very different response to that. Did you have to anchor to something or did your family have to anchor to something or reframe it to have the outlook that you guys have? Without a doubt, without a doubt. So I will tell you, I was very angry, very, very angry the first nine, 10 months after losing my brother and angry for a lot of reasons, because, you know, I come from a military family. I'm a fourth generation military brat. My great grandfather served in both world wars. My grandfather served in World War II. My grandmother was a welder in the shipyard during World War II. She built three aircraft carriers. My dad and all of my uncles, they all put on a military uniform and served the country. And they all were in combat. Korea War, Vietnam War, Vietnam, Desert Storm. I mean, they all served, right? So three generations of men in my family all served in combat, in conflict, and they all came home and got to live a long, fruitful lives. But yet my brother in the middle of peacetime. I mean, there was nothing. The only thing bad about the year 2000 was Puff Daddy came out with the worst album of all time that year. That's the only thing. Tragedy for us all. Yeah, yeah it was tragic. It's totally tragic. But we survived Y2K. Like Y2K was 1999, right? And so we thought that was tragic, but we survived that. So 2000 was a good year. And then my brother in the middle of peacetime gets killed by two Al-Qaeda suicide bombers. And so I was angry Like, why? I mean, this is not how it's supposed to be. And I was really, really angry and I wanted to give up on everything. I mean, like I'm the oldest of four boys and I had two other brothers left and I literally thought about packing my house up, leaving South Carolina, moving back home to Virginia and just hoarding over my two baby brothers and staying close to my parents because, you know, what good is it to do anything when you can't even take care of the people who are close to you, right? So I wanted to do that. But it was, you know, one of these times when I was listening to motivational speakers like Les Brown and and other speakers. And Les Brown had this famous phrase that says, life will always knock you down. When it does knock you down, try to fall on your back. Because if you can look up, then you can get up. And I literally felt like I was down and I was on my back. And I made a decision that I would live my life the way my brother lived his life. And that is, he was a servant first. I mean, like I can tell you a story about him when he was 21 years old, living across the street from a young couple who had three young kids. And he was talking to Brandon out in the front yard one day. And Brandon says, I hadn't taken my wife on a date in three years because we got three kids under four. And my 21-year-old brother 
who normally would be doing what every other 21 year old does, which is party and hang out on the street and do all kinds of other stuff. My brother volunteered to babysit these three kids every other Friday night so this guy could take his wife out on a date. So you talk about service above self, that was a definition example of it. And then we started to think back of all of the things like that, that my brother has done in the 22 years of his life. I said, well, if he served, then I should do the same thing. And it's in that focus that I found my strength. My mother found it too. My mother started to volunteer to help other moms who lost sons or daughter in combat because in 2000, it was just 17 families on the coal. But a little more than a year and a half later, after 9-11 and after the war in Iraq, you have so many men and women coming home in body bags that there were more gold star mothers who needed support and help through their difficult times. And my mom was there for them. And she became the national president of the American Gold Star Mothers. My father, who worked at the VA as a veteran, began to spend his time helping other veterans get their benefits. And so our family just made a commitment to serving other people. And that's where we found our greatest strength, our greatest focus, and how we really could make a difference in the lives of other people. That's amazing. Oh my gosh, what a story. Anton, if someone's listening right now and maybe they've experienced a loss, maybe of this magnitude, maybe a little bit smaller magnitude, but they're really struggling on either moving past it or reframing it or seeing any good coming from that, what advice would you give them? The first advice is to get some counseling or a therapist. I wouldn't be here without that as well. And we know that mental health has always been stigmatized for a lot of reasons, particularly in different communities and demographics. I mean, men never talk to anybody about their problems. And then men of color in particular, particularly African-American men, we don't talk to anyone. And I will tell you, talking with someone who can help you to process your emotions is the first step to coming out of it. And you got to find somebody that you trust and talk to. And so I would tell you first thing to do that. The second thing is what I found my greatest strength is, is that as much pain as I was in, me finding some way to serve other people, whether it's volunteering at a homeless shelter, whether it's cleaning up in the neighborhood or mentoring young kids at school. I mean, being able to shape someone else's future, I found so much comfort in being able to make a difference for other people in small ways. Sometimes it might be just be writing a check to charity or serving on a nonprofit board. But I would say the second thing is, is find a way to make a difference for someone else. It'll help you to reframe the calamity that you're dealing with. And yes, losing a brother in a terrorist attack is something that most people cannot identify with. But I can tell you in my few years of after losing my brother, I've met some single moms raising two or three children by themselves where the father's not around. And those kids were going to end up in a bad place if they didn't have a mentor or someone in their lives. And I became that person. And I'd made a list maybe about a year ago, like all of the young people that I've mentored and helped over the last 22 years. And I came up with over 240 names of people who will tell you what difference I made in their lives. And so, again, going back to the point, that's how you build true legacy is to make a difference in somebody's life who would not be looking for your help but needs your help. And you made a decision to help them. So the second thing is to find some way to serve. And the third thing is, is to recognize that coming back from difficult times is not a sprint. It is not even a marathon. It's a journey. You're going to have stops and starts. Some people are going to help you along the journey, and some people are not going to be there with you on the journey. It's going to be a lot of twists and turns. 
And I will tell you that now I'm 22 years past it. I still miss my brother every day. Every time there's a new hip hop album that comes out, I miss talking to him because that was the thing that we did above all else. Every Tuesday when new music came out, we were on the phone for an album playing the five CDs that I bought and playing the five CDs that he bought. And we talked through them and played them through the phone. So every time new music comes out, I miss my brother. And that's every Friday today. So you're never going to get over your pain or your hurt, but you got to find some way to process it. And through counseling, through serving other people and recognizing that you got to be here for the long haul and not in the short term, that it never goes away. It just gets different. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for imparting that wisdom on anyone who's listening, though they may not be able to identify with that specific loss. People can identify with loss. So thank you. So switching gears a little bit, Anton, leadership consultant, what made you get into this type of work? Like I look at where we've mentioned hip hop a couple of times. This has been important in your life. Yes. You've got football, you've got advisor to President Barack Obama. You've got a lot of things in there. Like, How did this all kind of coalesce? Tell us how that worked. Yeah. So the quick story is I am a former college football player and a lot of my leadership lessons, well, actually, secondarily, it starts with sports. The primary leadership lessons is because I'm the oldest of four boys. And so anybody <laughs> who's listening to this podcast, if you're an older sibling in the family, you know exactly what I mean by leadership that you took every butt cutting and whooping for your siblings that you ever could. And your responsibility is to make sure you kept them in line. At least that's how it was in my house. Right. But sports is where it kind of all kind of came together for me. So one, I played college on the offensive line. And there's one thing about the offensive line. If you don't know football, it's the five big guys up front who have to work together as a team and their names never get called. They don't score touchdowns. They're not interviewed in the post-game report. Nobody wants to talk to an offensive lineman at all. And the only time your name gets called is when you screw up. And so you work together as a unit, five of you as a unit, and your job is to make everybody else look good. And that's what I did as an offensive lineman is to make my teammates look good. And so that's the first lesson of leadership for me is that it's not about you getting all the credit and all the glory. It's about the team winning and you doing your part for the team to win and allowing those other people who have special talent to be able to showcase their special talents. That's where it starts. The second part of leadership from sports is that, unfortunately, I went to a college football program at the time that was incredibly toxic. And when I mean toxic, my freshman year, we won three games. My second year, we won five games. My third year, we won four. And my last season, we won six. So three out of 11, five out of 11, four out of 11, and six out of 11 games. We were marginal at best as a team in the early 1990s. However, I played on a team with more than 22 guys who had five-year NFL careers or longer. So my teammates were incredibly talented, but when we were all together in college, we were marginal performers. Now, why is that? It's because we didn't have good leadership. We had a team environment that was really full of toxicity and verbal abuse and just a lot of discontent. And I thought it was personified only on me because I didn't play a whole lot in college. And I thought it was just me, a bad athlete. But I'm looking at all my other teammates who are struggling just the way I am, and we're not winning games. But they all leave our program and they go play for great Hall of Fame coaches. And they have these long NFL careers and make millions of dollars. And so I learned how not to treat people as a leader. 
And that's the origin of my origin story around leadership. So I've led large teams. I've led small teams. Again, I'm an entrepreneur. I own my own business and I got a small team. And so I know what it boils down to, that if you want to be success as a leader, it boils down to three simple things. And everybody who's listening, your customers want these same three things that every employee wants. Everybody wants these same three things. And there are answers to three questions. Question number one is, do you care about me? Question number two is, will you help me? And question number three is, can I trust you? And so as a leader of people, it's not the answer yes that people want to hear, is that they want to see yes in your actions, that you care about me, that you're willing to help me to be successful, and that I can trust you. And if you think about it as a business owner that own your company, if you make any kind of product or service, you provide any product or service, Every customer that shows up at your door is asking, do you care about me? Will you help me solve the problem that I have or get the solution to what I need? And can I trust that this is going to work? And if you don't answer those questions with your actions, you won't be in business long. And so if you're leading a team, if you don't answer yes to those questions, you won't keep those employees long. They'll quit. Sure. And the clients that I work with, the large organizations that I work with, I tell them it boils down to how are you answering yes to those three questions every day? Because the moment you stop answering yes to question number one or question number two, you're destroying trust. And when you destroy trust between people and in an organization, you don't have a team and you don't have an organization. You have an environment that people are trying to get away from. And when I was in college, my coaches never answered yes to those three questions for me or most of my teammates. Do you think that you would have been a leadership consultant if it wasn't for that role in football, like having crappy leaders? I, you know, I wonder about that. I would say I wanted to be a school teacher. So when I went to college, I got a bachelor's degree in history because I wanted to be a school teacher. And I wrestle with saying whether I would be a leadership consultant or not, because I feel like what I do now is I still teach every day. And the reason why I was passionate about being a school teacher is because I had an 11th grade teacher and Mr. Eric Carlson, who's in Michigan right now. So shout out to him if you are hearing this in any way, shape or form. But he answered those three questions for me every day in history class. He showed that he cared about me and what was important to me, and that he was helping me to not only learn the history and the curriculum, but learn how to understand the past and what the past meant for the present and for the future. And I surely trusted him because of how he built an environment. And so, yeah, maybe I wouldn't have been a leadership consultant that works with large organizations like I do, but I'm confident that I would have been leading people in some way helping them to answer yes to those three questions, even though I didn't know what they were. But I saw it in so many good people, in my parents, in Eric Carlson. And I saw it so awfully undone with these college football coaches that I played for. But when I finished college, the first job that I got, I had a boss named Lenora Reese who literally exuded the answer yes to those three questions in everything that she did for me. And so I have more good examples of how you should lead than bad examples of how you should. It's amazing to me. It's, it's interesting that this teacher that made this impact on you was a 
teacher and a history teacher. And then you went on to study history to be a school teacher. Yes. Coincidence, probably not. What's also interesting to me, why that's particularly striking to me is that when I was younger, I was a troubled youth, we'll say troubled teen as well. And one of the big turning points for me, there's a couple of little runs, but one of them was that I had a teacher my sophomore year in high school. And I still remember her name is Miss Drinkwater. And it was a little bit different, but it was just kind of I see you and your story matters and your voice matters and kind of gave me a platform for writing. And when I first entered college, I entered as an English major, which is crazy because then I switched to pre-med and all that sort of stuff. But I'd forgotten that I entered as an English major and how much of that was tied to her impact on me. I hope that both of these teachers are listening. Yeah. Ms. (laughs) Ms. Drinkwater showed you that she cared about you. The fact that she saw you and acknowledged your story and your experience. I mean, that's what we all want, right? We want someone- Know that we matter. To know, exactly. That's a fundamental point of leadership is the people that you lead, they need to feel that they matter and you should be showing that every day. That's a a basic premise. So true. So you know how I let her know that she mattered, Anton? You know what I did? Oh, what'd you do? (laughs) I've not shared this on Pivot Me before. So her favorite movie was Dead Poet Society, which I'm pretty sure probably ages me. You're nodding, ages you too. So favorite movie is Dead Poet Society. So how did I show her that she mattered is one day we walked into class and I got up my knee high combat boots and I had my black patent leather pants and my black shirt on, little golf kid. And I got up on the desk and I recited, oh, captain, my captain to her. <laughs> You sure did. I was 14, 15. The whole class is looking at me like, all right, well, April's officially lost it. And I remember she stood there and her eyes welled up with tears. It was significant to her. It was significant to me. It was not sent to the principal's office, but it's funny because every once a, when I went to my reunion for high school, people were like, wait, you're, you're the person who did the, oh, captain, my captain on a desk one year. And I'm like, yeah, that was. That's that was awesome. Me. That's amazing. That's great. I completely forgot about that till just now. So I think it's interesting because in our lives, sometimes it is the examples that turn us down a particular path, the the Mr. Inkwaters, the Mr. Carlson's that show us, hey, there's this other way. And sometimes it's the warnings, right? The the people that it's like, well, this is a terrible leader. And I had someone on the podcast a while ago and we were having conversations about how many bad bosses he'd have. And he's like, that's why I ended up having this 25 year career. And I ran the company the way that I did is because I had a series of bad bosses. And I was reflecting on that. And I was like, you're absolutely right. In my career, there was a long series of bad bosses and they gave you a lot of examples of what not to do. But I think it's so important that people like you come out as this beacon of like, here's what to do. Here's how to let your people know that you're significant, that, you know, you can trust me, that they matter. Earlier, when you're talking about leadership, you also talked about justice. I'd like to know more about that, like how that factors into this. Yeah. So I think this is probably the biggest thing that people miss, particularly in the large organizations that I work with. And so we've all heard this phrase, life isn't fair, right? And we know that is true. Life is not fair. Some of us are born with opportunities and privileges as other of us will never see. And then some of us enter into the same equal on a playing field, but somebody ends up with a better deal than we do. So we know that it is unfair. So nobody is discounting that. And I'm not at all discounting that. But I think the greatest measure of a leader is to be able to see the unfairness where it might exist in an organization 
and do something to make it right. Let me be more specific about that. I study lots of leaders throughout generations, both in the corporate sector, many in the nonprofit and the social sector. But literally, if we think back to the leaders who have made a significant impact on our planet, on our planet, not just in America, but on our planet, these are people who literally see unfairness and say, you know what, I'm going to do something to make it right. I'll give you three names. First one is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., okay? How many preachers were in the Deep South in 1955 who saw the same things that Dr. King saw? Hundreds of thousands of them. But he was one that made a decision that I'm not just going to see and experience the unfairness like everybody else. I'm going to do something to try to make it right. And even to the end of his life, he says, I may not get there with you. I may not be able to do everything, but I've done enough to try to make it right. I've done something to make it right. Second example, Mother Teresa, another school teacher. Mother Teresa was a school teacher who decided that, you know, what's happening to people in developing countries, people suffering from sickness and disease, that they need help. So she took her last paycheck to find a way to help people in a developing country who needed help people with leprosy and HIV and AIDS and other debilitating conditions. So she says, you know what? I can't solve this all over the world, but I'm going to do something to make it right. And the third example is Nelson Mandela, who sat in a prison cell for 27 years because he was so committed to try to make things right for people in South Africa. And I just use those three examples, but you can think of like 15 or 20 others across the world who literally are people who says, you know what, something is wrong and I'm going to try to do something to make it right. Like, I really believe that the growth of Tesla as a company is not grounded in Elon Musk's social media profile. It's not grounded in the fact that he's a multi-billionaire. It's grounded in the fact that he recognizes that fossil fuels and gasoline is costing the earth something long-term. So I'm going to build and develop a vehicle that relies less on that thing, which we know has been wrong for so long. You know, we started with whale oil to natural gas and all these other things, right? And so the point is, no matter what industry, no matter where you are, justice for me is doing something to make it right and not making the excuse about why you can't do anything or it's why it's not your responsibility or why it's somebody else's job to make it right. Or the people who sometimes live in oblivion, meaning they don't even know that things are wrong. I mean, we all have lived in oblivion at some point, right? And, uh, you know, half of America was living in oblivion before George Floyd was killed about uh, police violence against Black men. But then there was this awakening. So now that you see that something is wrong, what are you going to do to make it right? Are you going to make an excuse that it's somebody else's job or it's out of my control? What can a little old person like me do? You can't have those excuses if you're going to be a leader in the vein that I call an admired executive leader is a person who's willing to do whatever it takes to make it right. Even if you can't solve everything, you can do something. All right, we've got some awesome news today. The YouTube relaunch is here. 
now. Never seen before footage of our actual interviews. You're going to watch the video of me sitting down with Jay Abraham and asking him, what the hell are us entrepreneurs doing wrong? We've got footage of me talking to Cameron Harold and him telling the story of the rave he went to in his 40s. Footage of when John Lee Dumas from Entrepreneurs on Fire told us that we aren't perfectionists. We're cowards. We have it all captured and we are pumped to share it with you today. Go to YouTube and put in April Garcia Pivot Me and join in. See me thank Sharon Lecter in real time for writing the Rich Dad Poor Dad series because the series of books helped guide me when I was 20 into becoming a real estate investor. And listen in when I asked several of our high performing guests the very tough question of, hey, how do you personally self-sabotage. We made this for you. So join in at YouTube and subscribe so you will see when new videos are released. It'll be every Tuesday. You'll actually get notified. So take 10 seconds and do it now. Grab your phone. If you're on a desktop, do it there. Go to YouTube and enter April Garcia Pivot Me or enter the URL directly at youtube.com backslash April Garcia Pivot Me. And please support us by giving us that thumbs up and subscribing. We recently became partners with YouTube and that really matters. You're going to love these videos. Where is that space? I'm just thinking about, I think a lot of people live in that space of maybe knowing something is not right, but then there's that little gap before the action. And I think that's where a lot of us fall into. So how do you make that jump of, I see something that's not right, whether it's in my organization, maybe it's a social situation, but I haven't turned that into action. Like, how do you close that gap? The first thing you have to do is to eliminate the excuses. The elimination of excuses accelerates the action. And what am I saying when when I say that is that we will know something is wrong, but we will put ourselves through so many mental gymnastics about why we cannot do something about it. I don't have time. I don't have the resources or I don't have the expertise or it's not my job. It's not my responsibility to do it. Or if I did do something, then it's not going to work. Well, I mean, we literally put all of these obstacles in our way, these excuses in our way. And my mother-in-law has a great phrase. She says, excuses don't excuse. And her point is, is that you got to do something. You should do something. And again, it might be a small thing. It might be educating yourself more about the problem because you might see the problem, but do you really understand the problem? And so it might mean I really need to understand. I think like you and I, before we got on the Zoom, we were talking about the fact that, you know, we're both on LinkedIn. We both know our customers on LinkedIn. We're trying to help them and we want to connect with them, but we post on LinkedIn and our posts go nowhere. And we don't understand why we're not reaching more people because we know there's a problem, right? But we don't understand the LinkedIn algorithm. And so a big part of that is how do we go deeper to understand the problem? Is it something that we're doing or is it something that the platform is doing? And then what are we going to do to make it right? So we could make the excuse, I don't have time. I don't have money. I don't have the knowledge or the know-how. You don't have everything, right? But there are ways that you can make a decision to do something. And I think that's the thing is that it just really is that mental commitment, which is to say, I'm going to do something. I'm going to take a step forward. And it's kind of like, you know, people who want to lose weight, right? I tell people all the time, you know, success principle for me is that I walk five miles every morning before 9 a.m. So I call it five before nine. I'm 50 pounds lighter than I am today. 
Now, why am I telling you this part and tying it back into that? And this is the basic premise, is that we all know we're supposed to eat right and exercise. We all know that. We've known that since we were little kids. But the overwhelming majority of us do not do what we are supposed to do. And we make every excuse as to why we can't do it. I don't have time to work out. I don't like joining the gym or, you know, I got genetic dispositions. I and mean, we'll make every excuse in the world, right? But literally, how hard is it to get up out of your seat and walk around your house twice? Or maybe you have an apartment. How hard is it if you to walk around the block twice? Okay. So it doesn't mean that you're running a marathon. It doesn't mean that you lost 50 pounds overnight. But I made a decision when this pandemic started that I didn't want to die of COVID. And before COVID, I made every excuse of why I couldn't exercise, why I couldn't walk, why I couldn't, I didn't have time to do anything. But I made a decision that I was going to do something. And that's making it right, not only for my health, but making it right for my wife and my daughter who wants me to live a long life and enjoy it with them. But if I'm obese, out of shape, overweight, suffering from metabolical diseases, then I'm not going to be there for them. So doing something to make it right was an internal thing. And so I will tell people is excuses don't excuse. And you just got to eliminate them and say, you know what? I'm going to learn about this. I'm going to take an action step. I'm going to do something small. It's the little things over time that add up to the big things. Yeah. So good. I love the excuses don't excuse. It also sounds like you come from a long line of both married into and your line of not excuse makers. Like these are people that take action. Like they see a problem and they're going to solve it. I'm reminded of a Lee Iacocca quote, and I'm going to have to paraphrase, but he said something like, do something, do anything, as long as we don't sit here and just think yes. about it. Again, it's a, it's a paraphrase, but I remember reading that when I was a kid, uh, I was probably like 11, 12. And it really profoundly impacted me that I was like, just take action. You don't know what to do. Well, neither do I, but let's just do something like the whole kind of progress over perfection. We've got to take action. Whenever I find, this is something I talk to my clients about a lot in their own organizations, when they're saying someone should do something, I said, whenever those words leave your lips, you need to know that that someone is you. Facts. Facts. As my daughter would say, it's hundred percent facts. 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 It's funny how we start talking like them. <laughs> you know, we all want to have someone else to be Superman to solve the problem, right? Someone should do something. Imagine if you walked outside and you saw a building on fire and there were four people on the roof, you know, screaming, help, help, help. You're expecting the fire department to show up. But if you don't pick up the phone and call them, how are they going to show up? I feel like this problem's getting worse because I'm just thinking about the direction of, we'll say society. I'm using that loosely. I feel like uh, I'm a big believer in sort of this internal locus of control. Like what do you have control over? What do you have power over? And we've got to exert power over the things that we can and not put it in someone else's hands. Is this problem getting worse that it's like, oh, it's someone else's problem. I don't have to get involved. You know, that's a good question. I, my phrase is I always tell leaders, Control what you can control, influence where you can influence, and lead where you can lead. And so we tend to think that so many things are out of our control. But if all of us focused on controlling our controllables, then that would put less things out of our control. Again, because I'm a former elected official, I'll always put some things in the context of public service and politics. like. The first time I ran for office, April, I lost 
by 298 votes out of 14,000. So 14,000 people voted and I lost by 298 votes. And some people will say, Anton, you couldn't control losing like that. I mean, you should pat yourself on the back because you got close. And I was like, no, it wasn't close because I literally talked to people the next day, the next couple of days. He says, man, Anton, I thought you had it in the bag and I didn't vote because I didn't want to mess up my Air Force Ones or I just got my hair done and it was raining all day. So it was a, it was a rainstorm that day. Right. And so those individual 298 people, if they would have controlled what they could control, which is their ability to show up and actually vote, they couldn't control the weather but they could control if they brought an umbrella. They could control if they had voted early absentee and didn't have to vote on that day. If they'd have done one thing to control what they can control, the trajectory of my short time in public service might've been totally different. And so we all can take the small step. It's not even about the big thing. It's just like, what is that little thing that you can do? Like if you want to diet and lose weight, you know what? Maybe you're not ready for a diet yet, but you could increase your exercise. And that, and that's, putting one foot in front of the other. As our friend Rory Vaden would say, is taking the stairs rather than taking the elevator or the escalator. You can control whether you can take the stairs unless you don't have legs or feet and then you can't take the stairs. But then there's something else that you can do. So it's all of these things that we got to think about is control the controllables. But I reject that more things are out of our control this day. I mean, there's a lot that we don't understand. And I think that's probably the biggest piece is that you feel that it's out of your control when you don't understand something. We're very quick to have an emotional reaction than when there are things that we don't understand. And so you can have a responsive, non-emotional reaction when you take time to understand. And I teach leaders about the importance of situational awareness is that gain as much information about a circumstance or an environment that you're around or a situation that you're dealing with before you take action. So it's not get paralyzed by the analysis, but fully understand uh, what the potential outcome could be when you do take action. Sure. I love the idea that you reject that more things are out of our control. And so I would agree with that, but I wonder if people think that more things are out of our control. And and it kind of gives us a pass, right? If you're just kind of a victim of circumstances, it takes the responsibility off of you. And just to be clear, there are people that actually are victimized, not to diminish that. But when we think that these things are out of our control, like that, well, that was someone else's doing, someone else has got the power, someone else is holding the reins, then we can't influence the things that we can influence or control the controllables. Yes. You know, one of the phrases that I despise to hear people say is that, they, they did this. Oh, me too. Uh, me you know, too. This, you know, it's like this amorphous third party entity yeah. that is controlling everything. Well, they decided this and, you know, you know what they say, what, you know, the Illuminati or whatever it is. No, those things, we are they, we are they. I'm just thinking about like with the, your experience with politics, with being an advisor to Obama, did you... Uh, you had to have run into that a lot. Like, well, now you're part of the government. You've become they. Yes. Like, how did you navigate that? From my own family members. I bet, from my I own bet. Family members. <laughs> you know, the basic thing for me, and this is where I found the most success, is to demystify the complexity of things. Literally, again, one of my favorite hip hop artists is Nas and his song, Hate Me Now. And he has a phrase where he, a rhyme that he says, 
people fear what they don't understand and hate what they can't conquer. I guess that's just a theory of man. And so what he's saying here is that all of us are fearful of whatever we don't understand. And so when I was in government, what I really saw more than anything else is that people just didn't understand how government works, what government is supposed to do. And let me go back. The reason why I understood it, because I had a great 11th grade history teacher in Eric Carlson, and I had a great 12th grade U.S. government teacher in Sandra Friedman, who helped me to understand government. And I understood it because my dad was in the military and I knew how the military operated. But so many people have no knowledge about any of these things. I mean, we we live our everyday lives and we don't understand. So, so it's easy to fear something. And so it's then it's just bad. It's bad or they're controlling things or they're making these decisions or they're doing this because we just don't understand it all. And I spent my time just trying to break it down to the bone gristle, just like to the basic level, as my friend Joe Madison would say, can I put it down where the goats can get it at the lowest level so people can understand what it is? And that's what I do when I talk about organizational culture for my clients is people don't understand those three questions, right? So if just imagine if you were a CEO of a company and you got 10 employees or you got 10,000 employees, If you understood every day when your employees show up to work or when you get on that Zoom meeting with them, that they have those three questions tattooed on their foreheads or on their chest. And so how you answer questions, how you explain things, how do you lead meetings should be from the lens that they're asking these three questions. And how am I going to answer yes to those three questions today? That's a basic thing, right? You know, we, we love to talk about employee engagement and the great resignation. And, and we talk about all of these rewards and recognition. Do I need to pay people more? Do I need to do? No, 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 no. Pay is a terrible motivator too. Ter- terrible motivator. But people are motivated to work with people that care about them. My first boss, her name was Lenora Bush Reese. She gave me great experience and a great opportunity. I haven't worked for her since 1997 but I would run through a wall for her today. If she texts me right now and asks me to come and do something, I'm going to do it because she answered those three questions for me every single day. And even when I stopped working for her, she continued to answer those three questions every time I came into contact with her. So we all have this stick to this commitment to people who show us value. Your customers don't leave your business if you show them value that they that that you care about them and that you're helping them to be successful and that that you're always going to be trusted, right? So that's how you keep repeat customers. So it's not complicated, but when we don't understand that, we feel like I can't control my turnover rate. I can't control my customer attrition. I can't control any of these things. We always think of the things that we can't control, but you, the more you understand at the basic level of what it all boils down to, you can find something that you can control. Maybe not everything, but that one thing might be the biggest difference in your business. I mean, I'm thinking about this and this applies whether you're a small business owner, if you're a leader in an organization, it applies as a parent too. I mean, our kids are looking at us for the same three things. As I'm kind of stewing over these three things, they're simple, they're elegant, they're so freaking right. I mean, it's like you could almost say every person that you're encountering are asking those same three things, right? You do. So there's another thing about me. I'm a breakfast junkie. I don't really eat it anymore. But when I was growing up, cereal was like a part of life. Okay. And my favorite cereal was Apple Jacks. Okay. Apple Jacks, 
pops, and then honeycombs. I'm just my trifecta. If I ever go into a grocery store and I got a craving for some cereal and I walk to the aisle and I cannot find a box of Apple Jacks, that grocery store has just told me that they don't care about me because they don't stock my favorite cereal. And if I do find it in there, or if I can't find it, and let's say I go ask someone on the staff, hey, do you have any Apple Jacks? If that person says, you should just go look on aisle five, then you're not trying to help me. You're just telling me to go to aisle five. And I was just on aisle five and the cereal wasn't there. So you're not helping me. And so if you're not helping me and you don't carry my cereal, that means you don't care about me, then I'm gonna go to another grocery store. So it doesn't matter if it's a dry cleaner, a grocery store, your kids, your employees, your customers, your neighbors, your friends, anybody that you come in contact with, those three questions are front and center. And if you find a way to answer them, you will become a leader that leaves the same kind of legacy, lasting impact that Dr. King, Mother Teresa, Lee Iacocca, Nelson Mandela, Margaret Thatcher. I mean, you can go on and on and on that these leaders knew how to answer yes to those questions. Not to play devil's advocate, but as I'm thinking about those leaders, Mm -hmm. and then I'm thinking about, I know people that do embody these three things and they never raise to that level. Why is that? They have. They haven't raised to that level for you and maybe for I, but if they embody those three traits, there are people in their lives who will tell the same stories that I'm telling about Lenora Bush reads. Mm, okay. So maybe they just don't race to like the visual. Yeah. They don't have that aspirational goal to be a world leader. They don't have an aspirational goal to do that. But, you know, to some degree, I would say that you can think of different leaders in business who have done that. So Steve Jobs in the creation of Apple products, the iPhone and the iPad and all of these things. Well, His whole focus was about caring about a certain group of people who weren't technology nerds like the uh, Microsoft people were that really didn't get into D-based coding and all of this other stuff. I want to make an elegant, sleek product and make it intuitive for you to be able to use this technology. So I care about you to create this product. I'm going to help you to figure out how to use it and optimize it for your life. And then you can trust that my product is not going to get hacked that is not going to get a virus and that we're going to stand behind it, right? So Steve Jobs only did this in the vein of creating a product, right? But he's built a brand, even though he's no longer on this earth, people still talk about Steve Jobs because of the revolutionary way that he created a product. So my contention is, is that you may never have a Nelson Mandela or a Dr. King, but I can name hundreds of Dr. Kings that might just live in a small town in the middle of Texas. And for the 200 people that come to their church every day, they have that impact. Or this small franchisee who has the number one rated franchise in Jersey Mike Subs because every customer that comes in there, he knows their name and knows what they want to order before they come in the door and ask it on the menu, right? So you can do this in all kinds of ways. And they raise in that stature in the eyes of some people. And so you want to be an impactful leader like Dr. King, like Nelson Mandela, like Mother Teresa, and you will be, it just might be on a smaller scale. And that's okay. Because again, when you go to your grave, is this a life well lived? And have you left a legacy that matters to others? That's what I'm chasing. Yeah. We just have a couple of final questions, but Anton, what does your legacy look like? Like, what's it going to be? 
Ah, so uh, I'm so glad that you asked that question. I'm very passionate about the American healthcare system. Um, that's what I did for President Obama for three and a half years. I'm a bona fide Obamacare expert. You know, you probably never met one of those, but I am one of those, right? But I think for me, my legacy lasting impact would be to revolutionize the healthcare workplace. And what do I mean revolutionize it? At some point in time in all of our lives, we will need to go to a hospital or a health system for something, right? And we take it for granted every day that we show up that the doctors and nurses and the healthcare workers who are taking care of us and our loved ones are operating at the highest potential of their skill set and their professionalism. But I can tell you after 25 years of working around healthcare, that as toxic as my college football team was, the workforce in the average hospital are experiencing unprecedented levels of toxicity. That's why the burnout rate is so high. The average nurse makes it three years before they leave the profession, okay? The suicide rate amongst doctors is two and a half times higher than the general population. And more than 55% of doctors have thought about leaving the medical profession over the next 10 years. And so these are the people who we're depending on to save our lives and to help us to get better, but they're hurting. And they're hurting because they operate in an environment where they are not cared about and they're not being helped. And the leaders in those organizations are losing trust from the frontline healthcare workers. And so I want to show the leaders who run our nation's hospitals and healthcare systems on how to answer those three questions. And my goal is that I only want to help 10,000 healthcare leaders. Healthcare has, you know, you know, 20 million people, 22 million people who work in healthcare, but I only want to help 10,000 of them. And I want to help the 10,000 who play leadership roles, because if I can help those 10,000, that'll in turn help 10 million employees that work in healthcare. And that will also help a hundred million patients like you and I, who will need them at some point in time in their lives. And so for me, that's what my legacy looks like, is that the American healthcare system is a place that's thriving. And we know the pandemic has shown us how it's not thriving, but I want to help hospitals and healthcare organizations to be resilient beyond the next pandemic. I want to pandemic-proof the leadership culture in America's hospitals and healthcare systems. And that's what I've been working on for the better part of five years, solidly. And I will continue to do that until I have that impact that I want to have. I love it. It's so clear too. Obviously you spent some time thinking about this and working on this. Just a little bit. Of course you have. Of course you have. Just a little bit. So I have one final question before I ask that, Anton. So you are an author. You're an amazing speaker. You get booked all over. Where is the best place for someone to connect with you for the work that you do? If you want to connect with me, the best place is to go to my home, AntonGun.com. You'll find all my social links and handles there. I'm on every platform at Anton J. Gunn. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Anton J. Gunn is where you can get me. And so if I can add value to you, I'm happy to help any of your listeners and help them to grow in their leadership. For sure. Anton can definitely add value. So if you're hopping on, we'll put the link in the show notes so you guys can click on it right through there too. I love the information that you provided today. One final question we ask, which is, if you could tell the world one thing, what would it be? Make it right. That's it. If things are wrong, if you see some unfairness, if you see some injustice, I'm telling you to just make it right. 
That's amazing. That's perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today, Anton. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. You too. Make it right. If you see unfairness, injustice, just make it right. So simple, so true. I love when earlier Anton said, when we step in to change something, it won't be perfect. You you get curious, get some answers, but it's not going to be done perfectly. You don't have to have it all figured out, but don't let that be an excuse. (laughs) Actually, I love what his mother-in-law says, excuses don't excuse. So good. I feel like I can use that as a parent too. I'm going to put that, like drop that in my tool belt. Let's recap on those three critical questions for any leader that he went over. So here's what he said people really want to know about you. Number one, do you care about me? Number two, will you help me? Number three, can I trust you? Now, if you're a leader, I want you to imagine your team right now. In fact, if you're in an office with them, he'll stand up and like look at their faces. Would each of them say yes to all three of those about you? After this interview, I'm going through this process. I want anyone who works with me, teammates, a partner, direct clients to give a hell yes to all three of those questions. Yes, I care about you. Yes, I'm going to help you. Yes, you can trust me. But this takes some honest reflection. We change our truths by first facing them. My hope is that this podcast has made you a better leader, a better partner, a better parent, and that you will be aware of unfairness and have the courage to take that step into action, even if it's messy action. Thanks for joining us today, and I'm mighty glad to be doing this together with you. Thank you so much for dialing in today. And don't forget, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love what you hear, give us a five-star review. It means the world to us. Hit me up on Instagram at the April Garcia or check us out online at pivot-me.com. This is all made possible with the support of you listeners, the numerous contributors, and our clients. Our music and production is by the amazing Rockwood Audio. Join me next time for more tips on how to hack success. And until then, make it a great day. Thanks, guys. You guys are amazing.